0: Amen. Thank you, Jonathan. Um, good morning. Uh, happy Mother's Day. Uh, it is—I it, it, mean, it is—it is a blessing to be able to celebrate this day with uh, with mothers. My my mom died in 1999, uh, and so I've been about 11 years uh, without having her around to celebrate with, and that's just a sad thing. So uh, I pray for you that you'll rejoice and the opportunity to uh, celebrate together today as we as we just take time to honor uh, the women in our lives. And so, I'm uh, glad glad to be here with you this morning. We're in the middle of a series, uh, walking through the Gospel of Matthew, and in order to get through Matthew in a way that doesn't you know create boredom, we've kind of divided that series up into a number of subsets. And so, for the past few weeks, and again, continuing pretty much through the summer, we're going to be talking about... The bulk of the middle part of Matthew, where Matthew really is interested in us hearing the teachings of Jesus and figuring out how to put them into practice, that he wants us to become followers of Jesus. He wants us to become disciples. That's his goal. That's what he understands genuine Christianity to be, that we would not just hear and think, man, isn't that great? But that we would hear with the expectation uh, that we would put into practice the things he's teaching us. And so we've been looking at. Some passages of scripture this week is the second week in this passage in matthew 10 where jesus sends out the 12 And gives them instructions as they go. It's a particularly hard passage of scripture. I'm very nervous this morning uh, And so that's not why i'm dressed up in a tie and try to add credibility to what i'm going to say or anything like that um, The rules haven't changed uh, Some of you are in shorts and that's just great um, You know, but i'll explain that in a minute anyway, but let's read from matthew 10 Verses 16 through 33, and really, it would be enough for us just to read this and pray and go home. Um, But unfortunately, you're going to have to listen to a few comments from me about some of these things. So let's read together. Uh, Remember, Jesus sending out the twelve, his instructions to them as they go, and then we would say as we go, his instructions to us as well. Behold, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. That's going to be an important, a really important verse. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues, and you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake, to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the spirit of your father speaking through you. Brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father, his child, and children will will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. For truly, I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor is a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebub, how much more will they malign those of his household? So, have no fear of them. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. This is God's word. Um, what we've been saying as we've been going through this particular part of Matthew is Jesus has a mission. He has come into the world to accomplish something very specific and very significant. He came to bring the kingdoms of heaven near. So that all who would repent and believe in him could enter into eternal life now. And to accomplish this mission, what we've seen is that God the Father has given all authority in heaven and earth to him. And with that authority, what he's been doing is he's begun to heal the creation, to heal the sick, to throw demons out of people's lives. He even is subduing the creation to himself. He speaks to the winds and the waves, you remember, and the winds and the waves obey him. Uh, But what we said last week is Jesus has a problem. The problem is is he needs workers to accomplish the mission. He needs workers alongside of him. And so here in Matthew 10, he sends the 12 who are part of the larger group of people that have been following him throughout his earthly ministry. He sends them out to do what he has been doing. They are to take up his mission and take up his authority. That's what's going on here. Now, what we've said is that even though we don't believe the apostles are around anymore, we believe in an apostolic church, that the church if it is apostolic, is built upon the teachings of the apostles and it carries out the mission of the apostles in their absence until Jesus comes again. And so what that means for us is that we are to live as his disciples, his followers, his apprentices. And here's what that means. It means that we, like the twelve, we take up his mission and make it our own. We take up his authority. You know, But in this point of the instructions he gives us, it also means that we take up his mission means we take up his authority. But it also means that we take up his mission means we take up his sufferings. That we should expect conflict. That's what's going on here. And it's tough. And so two things to let me, let me, let me kind of, two just things at the very beginning. And first, let me just temper everything I'm going to say with this. Uh, You know, we need to, we need to talk about suffering. We need to talk about, you know. Hard things this morning and I just want to say That I haven't even gotten close to figuring out what this means for me and my family Um, I mean here's the irony I mean here's God's sense of humor Uh, First of all that it's Mother's Day and we have to talk about these things Second of all um, that I've been preparing all week to come and talk to you about suffering And I'm all dressed up like this because we're going to the country club to eat brunch after I'm done (laughs) I mean that's hilarious, right? I mean, that's just absolutely hilarious. So we're going to go suffer for Jesus at lunch while we're eating cheese grits and rack of lamb. I don't know what, you know, and, and that's just the reality. And it's something we've been wrestling through for a long time. You don't know. You don't, you, a lot of you aren't really familiar with our story. But one of the things that's a part of Ashley and I's story is um, we uh, before we got into kind of the normal church, church, you know, local church ministry and even the church planning thing, Back uh, right after my mom passed away in 1999, we had felt led by God to go to the mission field, and we really targeted Spain. And we were going to go to Spain and, and initiate a church planting movement there in, among an unreached people in Spain. And so part of what we had to do is we had to go over there to kind of figure it out, what's it going to look like, and all this kind of stuff. And, um, and we were planning on being there for 14 days to kind of stake things out. And we were there for 14 hours, and uh, we were in the hospital uh, in Madrid, and Ashley had gotten food poisoning, and had thrown up so violently that we ended up in a hospital. Um, the 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 hard part of the story is is we had learned two weeks before we left for the vision trip that she was pregnant with Canaan. Uh, and so we, uh, uh, how do I say, I freaked. We're trying, you know, we're trying to trans. I mean, we don't speak Spanish. The doctors, you know, baby, you know. Don't give her any medicine. She was bleeding. We were, we were really, we really thought we were going to lose Canaan. And, uh, so I called my dad, blubbering and crying, and said, get me out of here. And we decided to go home after just two days. And, uh, we were with the guy that would have been my, my supervisor. And they sat us down before we left, you know, and they, and we did, and we said, look, we're, we're going home. And they really encouraged us, don't do that. Stay. Let's figure this out. No, we're going home. And, and really, and I know he was trying to love us well, and he just said, you know, because we were a young couple, and he said, well, listen, uh, for the gospel to go to the nations, um, people are going to have to be willing to lose babies. And we said, well, we're not those people right now. Uh, and so I just want to tell that story because, I mean, you know, I can't imagine my life without my nine-year-old. I mean, I, and the cost of suffering, the cost of uh, of really being faithful to the mission. And, and that he's right. He's right. There, there are missionary couples all the time that lose children because they're in places where there's not adequate medical Help. And that and, and people bear those costs because they realize that's part of the mission. So I just I just say that to say I've not figured this stuff out. I'm trying to figure it out. Uh, but, but I'm so far away from it. And it's just, you know, ridiculous in many ways. But secondly, let me make this practical before we even get to the text. OK, and I, I, I want to say this at our pastors meeting on Wednesday morning, Dax Gibson, who's the associate pastor. At Christ Community Presbyterian Church, one of our sister churches in Lakeland, he told the story about approaching John Piper after a meeting. I don't know if you know who John Piper is, but he kind of is a guy that talks a lot about this. And so he approached him after a meeting that he was doing and asked about all the suffering stuff that Piper's always talking about and how to be faithful. How, you know, so in other words, I'm a middle class, you know, American. How do I figure out what the suffering thing looks like? And John Piper's advice was so practical and so good. Uh, John Piper basically said He just said commit yourself to a life of love And suffering will find you You won't have to go looking for it I thought <laughs> oh, man that's good uh, It's just love Just love And you will suffer because every act of love Is like a death So moms This is a sermon for you on Mother's Day Because being a mom is a call to suffer Can I get an amen The men are going to amen You know Being a mom is a call to suffer Genesis 3.15, I will multiply your pain in childbearing. Childbearing is painful. I mean, it's painful for me, and I didn't do it, right? And not just the first little bit. I mean, it gets worse. The older they get, it'll break your heart. And that's what Jesus is telling us. You see, Matthew reports here that when Jesus saw the crowds of people following him, How they were harassed and helpless. Their lives were literally mangled and ravaged by sin. And they were full of shame and heartache. They were needy and guilty and weak and broken. And and he says when Jesus saw them, he had compassion on them. He felt deeply for them and he moved toward them in love, which ultimately meant for him a cross. And around us are crowds of people who are harassed and helpless. And if we dare to feel compassion for them, then ultimately it will mean a cross for us. So a life of love is a life of suffering. So that's what we have to talk about this morning. And so three things here. It's always three things. I know we're getting predictable. We'll have to change that up. But three things. Jesus anticipates the reception we will receive. He says we'll be hated and persecuted. Number two, he shows us how to respond, where to be wise and innocent, courageous and humble. And then thirdly, he shows us where to find the energy to respond faithfully like that. So those three things. Let's just walk through this. You'll see the three points in your outline and try to get through this together. First, just this. Jesus anticipates the reception we will receive. If you look there in verse 16, Jesus begins this portion of his instructions with a warning. He says, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Now, this is not an unfamiliar metaphor. It shouldn't be. Because Jesus often refers to his people, to us, as sheep. But the implications are clear, and they're very uncomfortable for me, because sheep have many predators, and they are completely defenseless. Now, think about this for a minute. Sheep, they they don't have horns or sharp teeth or claws. They don't run fast. They don't have any natural camouflage. They are big, dumb, clumsy, fluffy, white herbivores. (laughs) He says, I'm sending you out like that. And so here's where we get Christianity all wrong. You see, the Jews expected a Messiah who would be a conquering hero, you know, a mighty warrior, the epitome of strength and power and authority and valor. And yet Jesus came, in the words of Isaiah the prophet, like a lamb led to the slaughter. Jesus came as a lamb, and the wolves devoured him, and we follow him as lambs too. And that just means this, that Jesus doesn't send us out with swords and spears and shields. We have only one weapon, and that is a spoken word. Verse 18, a witness. We witness and it's interesting the word there, if you know your Greek, you'll know that the word for witness is always the word martyr or martyron. Martyr. In other words, there's only one way to witness to Jesus as a lamb in the midst of wolves, and that is through your own suffering. Through your own pain. Through your own death. Jesus doesn't promise us power or position. He tells us we will be marginalized, ridiculed, hated, and persecuted. That's that's I mean, can I that's just it. But we have to ask the question: Why? Why? Why is why does it happen this way? Why? Why is this the way it works? So look at verse twenty-two, and you'll see there that he promises. He says, "You will be hated by all," and then he makes the qualifying statement for my my name's sake. And so, all this persecution and this hardship that we're promised here is not because we're jerks, but because of our association with Jesus. In other words, it's very fashion. You know, it's it really is very fashionable to hate christians these days but not because of our association with jesus but really because we're rude and arrogant know-it-alls and politically motivated and all these things in other words people in our culture don't hate the jesus they see in us they hate us us a lot of times because we're so unlike him but jesus says when we're really about the mission they will hate us but for his sake because of him because of him but why because the, the mission is sacrificial love so where in the world does the hatred come from that's why I'm so, help, I'm so helped by John in his gospel when Jesus is talking about the very same things. And I wish we had it. One day, the computer software we have will let me like say a verse and they can pop it up on the screen and we'll figure that out. But um, in John chapter 15, and you, need, you can look this up later, I just want to read these verses to you. 18 and 19. John 15, 18 and 19. Jesus says, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you were not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Now that's really helpful. And let me just kind of summarize all that Jesus is saying there. Jesus says love is not just affirmation, it's also confrontation. Love is not just affirmation, it's also confrontation. And being a Christian means that you often will be called to side against Jesus, side, excuse me, side with Jesus against the world. You will confront its idolatries in a way, in the way you live and especially in the words that you speak. Verse 18, our job is to bear witness. And lawyers, what does a witness do? A witness provides testimony, either for or against a person. Our job is to testify, to witness against the world, to expose the idolatry in our world and culture, uh, to expose the injustice and the sin at the heart of the way the world does business. And that's, that's what Jesus came to do. And that's what we're supposed to do, too. And we should expect the world to hate us for it. But that's so general. So general. So let's try to boil it down to the everyday. And let me just say this. If you love somebody, you don't just affirm them. You also have to confront them. Love is not just affirmation. It's also confrontation. And there'll be times in your relationships where you will have to side with Jesus against the person you're trying to love. You will see idolatry and sin that's destroying them or hurting other people or whatever it might be. You'll have to testify against them and let let Jesus just warn you they will hate you for that. And it even applies within family units. Do you see that? I mean, holy smokes, there will be times when love will require you to side with Jesus against your family. And discipleship creates this whole new set of beliefs and practices and and. I, You know, challenges and disrupts family patterns and belief systems and idolatries. And Jesus said, so much so that it will result in brother delivering brother over to the authorities and fathers turning in their sons. I mean, I just want, that's a real reality in a lot of places in the world today. And Jesus says, you better get ready for it. So see, what we see here is with the exception of John and Judas and the rest, the rest of the disciples that Jesus is sending out here, ultimately were martyred, and that's significant. The mission cost them their lives. It cost the apostles their lives. And later on in the story of the church, Jesus calls a man, Paul, to be an apostle too. <laughs> this is At one point in Paul's ministry, there are a lot of people who are questioning the validity of his apostleship. In other words, there are a lot of people wondering, you know, claiming to be apostles that were really false apostles, and a lot of people are just really confused about who the real apostles were and who the fake apostles were. And Paul's really caught in the middle of this, this tension. And so, at the end of Second Corinthians, chapter twelve, Paul addresses the issue and, and seeks, and he really is trying to drive home the authenticity of his apostleship. And, and what's amazing to me is in doing that, he doesn't list all of the churches that he's planted. He doesn't start name-dropping. He doesn't talk about the effectiveness of his ministry. It's startling. He lists his sufferings, imprisonments, beatings, being stoned, five times receiving 40 lashes, three times shipwrecked, always on the go, sleepless nights, all of these things. And I was reading an article this week that referred to this as Paul's resume of death. So Paul's argument is just this. The litmus test by which you prove your apostleship is suffering. Paul suffered. The false apostles hadn't suffered. Therefore, you know, he was a true apostle. That was his argument. But Jesus is making a similar argument here. For Jesus, the litmus test by which you prove your discipleship is suffering. Verse 24. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor is a servant above his master. Now, to illustrate this, before we move on, I thought it might be fitting... Um, to do this through Amy Carmichael's story, Amy Carmichael, famous missionary to Southern India, uh, a hero of the faith, uh, she, you know, she's just wonderful, wonderful lady. She spent over fifty years on the mission field and never came home on furlough. Uh, she ministered in a part of India that I spent a lot of time with, so I've read a bunch about her. And Elizabeth Elliot wrote a biography of her life, and the title just unnerves me. I mean, you think, you just think about um, what would the title of the biography of your life be? Hmm. I mean, you know, young church. I, you know, what would it be? Uh, and Elizabeth Elliott shows for the title of the biography of Amy Carmichael's life. You Ready? A chance to die. And the title comes out of a story where a young woman in the U.S. who was thinking about becoming a missionary wrote to Amy Carmichael and asked her, what's it like to be a missionary? And her response was one sentence. She just wrote back to this young lady contemplating going on the mission. She said, the missionary life is simply a chance to die. Uh, Amy Carmichael, who was familiar with suffering, who understood the cost, of the persecution, and the hatred that could come, uh, wrote a poem that's become a favorite of mine over the years and brings me uh, great comfort and also challenges me in many ways. But the poem is called uh, "Hast Thou No Scar? And it just goes like this, again, from Amy Carmichael. "Hast Thou No Scar? No hidden scar on foot or side or hand. I hear thee sung as mighty in the land. I hear them hail thy bright Ascendant star, hast thou no scar? Hast thou no wound? Yet I was wounded by the archers, spent. Leaned me against the tree to die and rent by ravening beasts that compassed me, I swooned. Hast thou no wound? No wound? No scar? Yet as the master, so shall the servant be. And pierced are the feet that follow me, but thy feet are whole. Can he have followed far who has no wound, no scar? See, she understands something. She understands the cost of what it means to follow Jesus. She understands that what you're willing to suffer for is a mark of of who you are and what you value. I mean, suffering reveals... What you value. And and the reality is is we suffer for all kinds of things. We suffer for our kids. You know, if you're going to get in shape and run a race, you have to suffer. Ashley and I ran a 5K last night. First time I've ever done that. Can I tell you? It's That's suffering. I suffered. My legs went numb about two and a half miles in, and I thought I was going to collapse on the side of the road. You know, but I made it. But... What will get you up early in the morning? I mean, what do you want so badly that you're willing to go without other things in order to get it? I mean, so we suffer for all kinds of stuff. But it's the same with Christianity as well. And so you see, Jesus expects conflict. He says, I'm sending you out as sheep among wolves. And so and, and that's the reality. That's what he's calling us to. And so the goal I want you to see in verse 22. The goal is really simple. The goal is just to endure. To be faithful in what Jesus has given us to do and to make it to the end. To not lose heart, to not give up. I was talking to a friend this week, uh, who I just love, who's retiring after 43 years at the same job. And he's married and has been married to the same woman for 43 years. And I'm just telling you, that's amazing. I mean, it's such an incredible picture for me of perseverance. Perseverance. And I just think God is so pleased with that. That I mean, it's my goal. It's my goal as the pastor of this church. I mean, I, I, don't, I just want to make it to the end. I mean, to face all the difficulties and all the suffering along the way and to just endure. And so we have to ask the question then, if this is what Jesus is calling us to, then how do we endure? How do we endure? And Jesus says the key to that there in verse 16 is we have to be wise as serpents. And innocent as doves. That's the key. So point two, we need both courage and humility. We need to be wise as servants and innocent as doves. So let's just talk about that for a few minutes. Generally, we fall into one of two mistakes. Some people listen to Jesus' warning, and they underestimate the hardship and the suffering they'll have to endure. They're naive. So that you can befriend me, let me go ahead and say, that's me. Small town boy raised in the Bible Belt, married to the sweet cheerleader who was nominated most Christ-like five years in a row at summer camp. Right? I mean, that's the truth. Right? You know, I I easily get overwhelmed. I mean, because I'm so naive to evil. Uh, when things get really hard, I easily get discouraged and frustrated, and I just check out. And if you underestimate the cost, you won't endure. You'll eventually lose heart and give up. If it, that's true of marriage. It's true of parenting. It's true of everything in your life. You'll become so disillusioned by the sin of other people and your own sin, you'll just throw in the towel. But you see, there's a whole other group of people who do the opposite. They don't underestimate. They overestimate how badly things will be. They become cynical, in other words. And so, if you overestimate the cost, you'll, you'll grow overly cynical and you won't endure either. And th- these are—I love these people. They, they, they really—they just crack me up because these are the people who become so disillusioned by sin. And by the sin in other people and in society in general that and, and you know, they, they just what they do is they live without hope, and so they just sit it out on the sidelines and complain and critique all the people who are trying to get the work done. But Jesus says to counteract both of those things, he says first you have to be wise as serpents, verse sixteen. Wise as serpents. He's saying, Don't be naive, don't underestimate, live with an accurate appraisal of the situation. Use your head. Be thoughtful. Uh, it's used, this word, wise is used of the serpent in Genesis 3-1 In the popular imagination of the day Snakes were the symbol for cunning And it's interesting how the mythology reign, uh, remains That even in the popular children's books Harry Potter, uh, the house of Slytherin uh, Is the house that values cunning and ambition and resourcefulness And the em- emblematic am- animals of Slytherin, anybody? Snake And so Jesus says, be wise, think strategically, get an accurate appraisal of the situation. We were talking about this in our house this week, uh, about the car bomber in Times Square with our kids. And they were just asking questions and we were having to say, there are people out there who hate us and who want to blow us up. I mean, we have, I mean, and that's just true, of, you know, but we as followers of jesus we have an enemy that's even more frightening whose agenda is to steal and to kill and to destroy evil is real it has a name and we're the target and that calls for wisdom and watchfulness and seriousness jesus says be wise like snakes but then look he doesn't stop there he says but but also be innocent as doves and in saying that he's saying okay but don't be cynical don't overestimate i mean the dove was the symbol of virtue and meekness and gentleness and harmlessness. Jesus is saying, don't let your heart get hard. Don't think that evil has the final say so because it doesn't. Be wise. But don't be cynical. Don't think evil has the final say so. Don't think evil's the the biggest kid on the block. Because it's not. You see, the way you know you're learning from Jesus as you really try to count the cost of what Jesus is sending you out to do and to love is that there's an interplay between these two. There's wisdom and innocence. There's courage and courage. And humility, in other words, you're able to wisely count the cost of discipleship, to have an accurate assessment of what it's going to take, and and so that it doesn't take you by surprise, so you're not naive, you can you say, you know, you know, this is going to be hard, it's going to change my lifestyle, I'm going to have to live with less, and you're able to be courageous, you know you're going to have to say hard things, and you're able to count the cost of being a witness, and still find the courage to speak, but, when you speak, you'll really be for the other person, And they can feel that you're for them. In other words, there's not just courage, there's humility. Your motives are pure. You're really trying to love. Not overestimation, not underestimation. So how do you get that? How do you become the kind of person that is courageous, even enough to move into conflict and speak the truth in love and decide with Jesus against the culture and the people in your life that need to repent? I mean, but do it gently. Do it with humility. And so the third point we see there this morning is what Jesus says is you have to live with the proper fear. You have to live with the proper fear, and here's where it just gets hard. I think because it's interesting that three times Jesus says "fear not" in these verses at the very end. Um, let's let's get the let's get the scripture reference right. Verse 26 through 33. Three times he says "fear not," and then he turns around and he tells us that we should be afraid. <laughs> okay, I'm confused. Jesus says he commands us to not fear, and then he commands us to fear. We're to not fear. And then we're to fear. So we need to walk through this slowly. Verse 26, he says, have no fear of them. Who's them? The people who are trying to kill you. The people who are mad at you and and want to disrupt your ministry. The people who resent your intrusion into their life. Have no fear of them. Verse 28, do not fear those who kill the body. And I wrote on my notes, seriously? I mean, how do you do that? I now, mean, I want Jesus says, <laughs> Jesus says, don't let the prospect of death make you afraid. I mean, that's what he's saying. People are going to hate you. Don't be afraid of that. They're going to say mean things about you and slander you. Don't be afraid of that. If they have the power to do it, he says, they might take your house away or your food away or your kids away. Don't be afraid of that. I mean, they might even kill you. But don't be afraid of that. Seriously? So how do you do that? How in the world does that begin to happen in your heart? And Jesus just says that you have to see there's something even more terrifying than the idea of death. If you're full of fear, what's happening is you're overestimating the conflict. You're making too much of it because at the same time you're underestimating the real threat. So verse 28, Jesus says, and this is a verse that just confounds me, But he says, do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Now let me try to translate that. Jesus is saying there's something far more terrifying than death. Hell. Physical death is no big deal compared to spiritual death because the one is temporary, the other is eternal. The body is just a shell, it is a tent for who you really are and even after the body wastes away you will continue and if that's true then the one you should really be afraid of is god that on the other side of death the bible says you have to stand before him to give an account of your life now look at verse 26 that little phrase there nothing is covered that will be revealed or hidden that will be not be made known do you realize how utterly frightening that is Can you imagine standing before the judge of the universe and every hidden inner motivation of your life being laid bare and every secret sin being made public for all to see? And to have to be accountable to that? That's the real threat. That's the proper fear, not the disapproval of men, but the disapproval and the wrath of God coming against sin. That's the threat. But now follow Jesus' argument because it gets really, if he goes on to say that this God who can destroy both body and soul in hell is also a God who cares for the smallest bird. He says, look there, verse 29, are not two sparrows sold for a penny? In other words, nobody thinks sparrows are important, but God does. The death of the sparrow doesn't happen outside of his providential care. And he knows the number of hairs on our heads, which is a greater challenge for some of us than for others. Right? But nonetheless, no hair, few hair. Lots of hair. He knows the hair on our heads. He knows the numbers. And we're far more valuable than, to him than sparrows. And, and so Jesus is reasoning again. He's saying, this, if the death of a sparrow is in the Father's hands, then our death is in his hands too. Fear not. So what Jesus is trying to help us see here is that the proper fear comes from seeing both God's terrifying wrath and his tender love. That's where, fear, that, that's where the proper fear. Both his terrifying wrath and his tender love, the threat of the wrath coming against sin and the largeness of his heart towards those he loves. And so, in many ways, this passage really points us to the cross. It points us to the cross. Because it's at the cross that the terrifying wrath of God is put on display. As it falls not on us, but on Jesus. And at the cross, the tender love of God is put on display because Jesus is there because of love. He's there because of love. And if you're not a Christian, what the Bible says is that if you put your faith in Jesus, then on the great day of God's wrath, when we stand before him and all that is hidden is revealed, you will have no reason to be afraid. And that's just the sweet irony of this passage, that if you live with the proper fear, if you fear God and allow that fear to turn you to Jesus, to ask him to save you and to come to him in repentance of faith, then you have nothing to fear. If you live with the proper fear, there's nothing to fear. If God is for us, Who can be against us? Because Jesus says on that day, He will acknowledge you before the Father. And that just means He'll claim you. If you claim Him, He'll claim you. If you acknowledge Him, He'll acknowledge you. And that's why you can endure. See, when you see that the real threat has been taken away, you'll see there's no more reason to be afraid. And that's what gives you the courage to keep going. The Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid what can man do to me you'll be completely secured by God's love but you won't underestimate you won't overestimate the cost you won't you won't make too much of the, the you know the things that are coming because the real threat has been averted but you won't underestimate the cost either because when you see what it cost him to love you the suffering that he had to undergo when you see and that he endured because of his love for you then that's going to humble you and you won't be naive about what it will cost you to love others or so when you have to confront them You'll be for the other person because you'll be so humbled by his love. And this is how this works. I mean, this is, this is how this works. The proper fear. Thinking through the implications of the gospel. So let me just finish by just briefly giving us a vision in two minutes for what this might look like. And let me start by talking to the moms. Uh, and so back to Amy Carmichael for a minute. She didn't, it was interesting, part of her story, she didn't want to be a mom. She was a single lady all her life. Uh, she wanted to be, she didn't, she didn't want to have kids. Because she wanted to give her entire life to concentrating on her missionary work. And in her biography, Elizabeth Elliot quotes an Old Tamil proverb as one of the chapter headings that says, Children tie the mother's feet. Can any moms, you know, know? children, amen, I got an amen on that. Children tie the mother's feet. In other words, kids come along and they just demand so much from you. They're always there, right? You can't get rid of them. They'll, They'll lock you away if you do that and for some of us that would be a welcome respite i guess but being a mom means less freedom it means it's going to be harder than it would be without those kids and amy carmichael knew that and yet god in his infinite wisdom gave her a ministry of rescuing children who had been sold into prostitution in hindu temples and when they buried her they put a birdbath over her grave and on the birdbath they inscribed the word amma which means mother in tamil she wanted to be a missionary And God made her a mother. You know, the love required of a mother for her children really is a call to suffer. I mean, sometimes you have to give up your dreams. I mean, you really can't live selfishly, you're less free. Motherhood is a chance to die, just like missionary work is. And the more you come to know the love of God for you in Christ, the more you'll be able to be less free and to be so joyfully. And that's just one example, really. Being a friend is a chance to die, right? I mean, what do you do when your friend calls you because of a wicked stomach virus that has invaded their, their house and she needs you to take her kids for the day and you know, saying yes means your family will soon be hugging the porcelain pony as well. I mean, what do you do? Right? What do you do? How do you say yes? I mean, being an older brother or an older sister... Is a chance to die Being the child of aging parents Is a chance to die And Go and die that, you know, What's your resume of death going to be Because every act of love is, is a death Go and die That's the call And there's only one way we'll ever be able to answer the call And that is to stare down the real threat The wrath of God against sin And then to see Jesus dying in our place To save us And to satisfy that wrath and the cost that he paid in order to love us well. And then to hear the words in verse 23 and 24. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor is a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. Whether you're a mom, whether you're an older sibling, whether you're just a friend, whether you're the child of an aging parent, whether you're a pastor or teacher or whatever it might be, it's a chance to die. Let's pray. Jesus, I pray that you would help us die well. Uh, and I, and I, I, really, I really do believe, I, I, I want to tread lightly in this, but I really do believe that if we are faithful to preach the gospel as it comes to us, That part of what we should be raising our children for in this church is that the possibility that you might call some of them to go to places in the world to share the love of Jesus with people who would kill them. I really do believe that part of what it means for us to take seriously the call of discipleship is that some of us, it means walking away from from where we're comfortable, walking away from a nice living to take up a call to missionary service in places in the 1040 window. Uh, Where christians are persecuted and suffer Uh, It really means that And, and yet I realize that the call to discipleship really means that as moms As moms, we just we see our motherhood as a call to suffering as a chance to die and we do it joyfully For the sake of the work that you would seek to do through us in the lives of those kids and to be a friend And to see a friendship as a chance to die Jesus, the beauty of what came to us through your death, the way that you loved us and died for us, and all of the good that came to us, if we desire to do good for our city, it will only come through our own deaths. And so I pray you give us courage this morning. I pray you secure us in the love that you have for us, that you are a God who knows the number of hairs on every head, but also humble us when we consider just how much it costs you to love us. And with that courage and with that humility send us out, innocent like doves, wise like serpents, to endure and to be faithful as witnesses to the truth of your kingdom, your love for our city. May you bear fruit in us through that, Uh, even as we go to the country club to have lunch. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I pray today is a great Mother's Day for all of you who are mothers. What a beautiful picture of the gospel uh, it is to be a mom. Uh, and, And there's dignity in that, so rejoice in that, but... But what the reality is, what he's calling us to is hard. And so the words of this benediction, that the threat that is coming, the real threat has been removed. And now we can know the Father's love and acceptance through the work of Jesus Christ in saving us. That is the food and the drink that is the nourishment. Uh, that we need to go and live with the courage and the humility that is required of us to be successful in the mission. And so this benediction really is uh, its nourishment for your faith, and you should receive it as such. And so when I put my hands like this, that is the, the body posture of, of impartation. I'm, in, I'm, I'm offering something to you. I was in a church recently where the majority of the church, when the benediction came, they, they, they literally gestured with their hands out like this. And so I would just encourage you, if you're hungry uh, for the benediction this morning, if you know how desperately you need these words to come in and to affirm you, uh, when we get to this time in the benediction, as I raise my hands, uh, extend your hands to receive. And so, if, you know, if you feel led or if you, that's something that you're comfortable with, I would, I would just invite you to do that as I offer this benediction, so receive it. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord, the great I am, turn his face towards you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace. Happy Mother's Day.